It's time for Forward Nation Radio. Now here he is, the host of Forward Nation Radio, David Leventhal. The NFL season began this week. And for those of us living in the New York area, the NFL season ended this week. You know what the only thing worse than being a Giant fan is? Not, not, not fair to say being a Jet fan, although that's possibly a good answer. The only thing worse than being a Giants fan is being a Giants fan married to a Patriots fan. Yeah, it, it might be rationalization, perhaps. It may sound like rationalization for me to say that I'm glad, basically, that I can now forget football for the next 52 weeks. Because, frankly, there is nothing to like about the NFL and that organization. Starting to fit the theme of today's show with its antitrust exemption that insulates it from competition. And going off in many directions from there. Anyway, I'm David Leventhal. This is Forward Nation Radio. Thanks for joining us again for our show on competition. But first, of course, a little bit on the news. Starting with, uh, remember how there was a big mass shooting at Walmart recently? Well, Walmart and some other retailers have finally decided that it's time to fight back. And in light of several mass shootings, as always, in the last week or so, Walmart and several other retailers have announced that they will be taking some big steps regarding guns. They will be discouraging anyone from carrying weapons in their stores. Wow, that is powerful stuff. That's where we are in America, Trump era 2019. That people are discouraged from carrying weapons into, into stores. I hope we can discourage ISIS from bringing bombs into our public places. That would be a nice solution to everything. The fact that I don't think this is going to be much of a solution. Well, this policy, which most of us find too timid, and seriously, that's all we can do, is too much for... I want to say Second Amendment advocates, but I guess I want to say gun lovers, gun fuckers, the people who responded to this decision by deciding that it would be a good idea to bring all of their weapons into Walmart stores and display them prominently while they walk around Walmart stores. Ah, yes, this is the way these people respect the memory of all those who died in a mass shooting in a Walmart store. How nice. Second Amendment advocates, gun lovers, gun nuts, gun fuckers. Nah, they're just fucking morons. Anyway, uh, speaking of fucking morons, John Bolton was fired this week. Yes, John Bolton, the longest-serving national security advisor of the Trump administration. Well, John Bolton, of course, says he wasn't fired, that in fact he quit. President Trump says he was fired, 
This is actually a remarkable moment in Trump administration history. This absolutely may be a first. Donald Trump says yes. John Bolton says no. Is it possible that one of them is telling the truth? This is probably a first. It looks like, unless there's a third option here, that either John Bolton or Donald Trump is telling the truth. Anyway, since Bolton, despite being rather rabid, was the longest serving national security advisor, we are going to devote our next show to reviewing his accomplishments. We will be compiling. Hold on, I'm getting word from the booth. Oh, I'm sorry. No, our crack staff has been able to pull together a compilation of John Bolton's accomplishments for this very show, just a couple of days after announcing the the resignation or firing or, you know, whatever. And so we will now review John Bolton's accomplishments as National Security Advisor. Okay, that was our discussion of John Bolton's accomplishments as National Security Advisor. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll try to put a list up somewhere or we'll review this list later on for those who have a hard time keeping all that in their memory. Anyway, that is actually the good news. The fact that John Bolton apparently accomplished absolutely nothing while he was National Security Advisor is actually the good news. Because the man is certifiably insane. As I have been talking about on this show since he was first nominated. Actually, probably from before he was first nominated. A man who had no business being anywhere near a national security apparatus and who never met a potential war that he didn't like actually didn't accomplish anything working for President Trump. And that really is something to celebrate. John Bolton, who will take his long-time record of public service. Over a year, as it turned out, I had no idea it was that long will take his long record of public service and will not leave it, in fact. He will be leaving our government, but he will continue in public service. Undoubtedly, he will be going back to Fox News, where he will be free to continue to lie to the American public. John Bolton, we hardly knew you. Anyway, see, I, I, I could say something nice about Trump. I could say that he didn't listen to the moron who he appointed as National Security Advisor. I could say that President Trump's instincts may be better than those of John Bolton. High praise indeed. In fact, I'm reminded the last time I was able to supply such praise was during the George W. Bush administration, the Boy George administration, where when our Iraq war was shown to be an obvious fiasco and that we were lied to get into it, we were able to say, like our president, well, George Bush. Better than Saddam Hussein. Really really an amazing moment here for our president. Better than John Bolton. And this, of course, Trump's instincts being better than those of the warmonger, as we've learned anew this week, are despite the fact that the world will not share anything with him. Yes, the president seems to not want his daily briefings from our security apparatus, But we've gotten more evidence that our national security apparatus doesn't want to give him those briefings anyway. And, in fact, is probably withholding a lot of secret information from the President of the United States. Because, 
like his son-in-law and most of the rest of his administration, the president of the United States could not get a security clearance if he had to actually get one. We found out again this week that the president of the United States cannot be trusted with anybody's secrets, including our own. Because like a three-year-old toddler, he feels the need to burst out with whatever information he knows as a way to show off in front of whoever's in the room with him. In this case, the Washington Post, I think, first announced that we had to secretly extract one of our most crucial assets abroad, our most crucial CIA asset in Russia, high up in the Kremlin, providing us with important information. We had to sneak him out of the country. We're not sure exactly why. And a lot of people of course, are blaming it on the media. But it seems that the most likely outcome or the most likely reason for this is that the President of the United States was not able to be trusted with this information and the President of the United States either did or was expected to out this CIA agent. That the President of the United States had said things that he should not have said and that would lead to the outing of the CIA's perhaps number one asset. Kind of like this week, remember he turned over classified pictures of Iran and its missile launches? But this is all okay. This guy who can't keep a secret, the commander-in-chief who can't be trusted with the information he needs to command, it's okay because we found out from Donald Trump in the wake of all this that He doesn't like spies anyway. That's right. Donald Trump doesn't like spies because, gosh darn it, he just hates all the deception and the lack of fair play that accompanies the whole spying thing. You know Donald Trump. He's all about doing everything right out there in the open. He's all about directness. Anyway, speaking of Donald Trump, I guess for a little while now, I'm going to have to start calling him President Sharpie. And when I say that, and I assume most of you already know what I mean here or where I'm going with this, perhaps I'm kind of underestimating him a little bit. Maybe I have underestimated him for a very long time because I thought he only used crayons. The fact that apparently Donald Trump may have used a Sharpie to bodlerize a map, a map of Hurricane Dorian. Yes, that's right. The president of the United States, for those who somehow missed this, had tweeted out that the people of Alabama had better be concerned because the hurricane was going to hit them hard, leading the weather U.S. Weather Service located in Alabama to send out its own tweet correcting the president's misinformation. We are just talking about natural disasters, of course. People might want the right information. Well, that, of course, made the president and his staff absolutely livid. And the results were still parsing who threatened to fire whom. The Trump administration tells us they didn't threaten to fire people in the uh NOAA and the Weather Service, but of course, just because they say it doesn't make it any more likely to be true. So it's probably false. They probably did threaten to fire all kinds of people for actually sharing information with the public, for making reality 
something that's, I don't know, true for people in this country. Yes, we're reminded of Stephen Colbert, my favorite quote of all time, famously saying to and about former President Boy George. We all know that reality has a well-known liberal bias. So in Trump's efforts to continue to wipe, wipe out reality, he decided that he was going to show a weather map that was clearly and obviously doctored with apparently a Sharpie pen. And if you have not seen this picture, I know you've heard the story, but look it up. The picture is absolutely worth looking at. It is beyond comical that this is what this child, this two-year-old thought to do. To scratch with a Sharpie, or maybe, I'm not willing to concede, maybe with a crayon on the map, a further front to say, yep, the hurricane's going to hit Alabama. This is what this child is doing. Now, to be fair, again, I think I may be giving him too much credit. Because if you look at that picture, and maybe it's just me, and maybe I'm a little too adolescent like the president, but it kind of looks a little like a penis. And I just cannot imagine that our adolescent-in-chief, our toddler-in-chief, our Sharpie-in-chief, could not could look at that picture and not immediately start thinking of the male reproductive organs. And maybe with the crayon, really, he was just, you know, drawing penis pictures, which I expect is most of what the President of the United States does in his free time. Sit around drawing penis pictures with crayons. Probably some boobs, too. Anyway, this whole thing would be funny if it were not really tragic. And if it were not indicative of a couple things of the Trump administration that can't simply be laughed off. The first is, of course, its extraordinary callousness. The fact that in the wake of a natural disaster, killing goodness knows how many people at this point, and completely disrupting the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands, the thing that most matters to him is that he not look silly. He not look like he got something wrong. You know, the president was out there drawing Sharpies and introducing weather maps. And all I could think is, this is wasted time. This is when the leader of the free world, the man who has the power to address the crisis that Hurricane Dorian was causing for people in the United States and the Bahamas and elsewhere, that, in fact, the leader of the free world could have been spending that time warming up his arm so he could throw towels, paper towels, at people in the Bahamas, like he did in Puerto Rico. But instead, of course, instead of focusing on the hurricane and helping people, when he wasn't lying about the fact that he got something wrong and tried to lie his way out of it, Donald Trump, of course, is back to focusing on his border wall. And he is spending billions of dollars that were not allocated to him because, of course, everyone in the country knows the border wall is a stupid fucking idea and we shouldn't fund it. Or, you know, Mexico shouldn't fund it. But he's not getting his funding because it's stupid and he's just a petulant little child. So he's redirecting funds from more important things like schools for the children of people, veterans, fighting our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's right. Among other things, Donald Trump diverted money, well, from 
Puerto Rico disaster relief. No surprise there. But also from a middle school that was going to be built for students that desperately needed it. Students who are the sons and daughters of our soldiers currently fighting our wars. This is the president's priorities. This is his callousness. But of course, the other problem that makes this whole episode not funny is again what it exemplifies regarding this administration and this president's concept of the truth and his belief in the value of the truth, how he reflects his entire political party in being at war with reality. A world cannot sustain itself if it cannot agree to at least basic factual truths. A democracy has absolutely no chance whatsoever of surviving if half or more of its people live in a fucking fantasy world of some toddler's creation. There was some news this week on a subject that I've talked about at length in the past, and that is the concept of gerrymandering. Speaking about democracies not being able to thrive, this gives me another opportunity to point out that anybody out there who wants to refer to this country as a democracy is deluding himself, or actually with a lot of help, being deluded. But there were a couple of happenings on the gerrymandering front in North Carolina this week. The first event in Lloyd Good. The first event is a legal decision out of North Carolina, the trial court in North Carolina State Court ruling on the North Carolina Constitution in Common Cause v. Lewis. A panel of three North Carolina judges unanimously struck down state legislative maps because of the ridiculous gerrymandering. That in the court's words were carefully crafted to ensure that in all but the most unusual election scenarios, the Republican Party would control a majority of both chambers of the General Assembly. In other words, the Republicans' efforts to gerrymander have crossed a line in taking away democracy from the people in this country and therefore violated the North Carolina Constitution. Republicans are now scrambling around this country saying, uh-oh, we better hurry up with those judges and replace judges around this country so we could be sure of what their decisions are going to be. Let's contrast this decision with the decision we talked about just a few months ago from the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court that is firmly in the hands of Republican apparatchiks and which, unlike the North Carolina court, somehow couldn't figure out how to recognize blatant political maneuvering that takes away the right to vote where it is obviously in front of them. In what is obviously a rebuke to the United States Supreme Court, three judges in North Carolina said, yeah, we can manage to do that, actually. We can manage to call a duck a duck. Maybe it's the quacking. Maybe it's all the other stuff. But we're going to call a duck a duck. Quick recap of what's going on here for just a quick recap for new listeners, because of a, as I've noted, I have talked about gerrymandering at length on this show. Uh, let's talk about U.S. democracy for a moment, because I started this out provocatively by noting we don't have any. There are three branches, so-called co-equal branches of the United States government. First one is the executive branch. That's the president of the United States. Is that democratic? Well, again, 
I need to remind people, perhaps, that Donald Trump, the president of the United States, got three million fewer votes than his opponent, Hillary Clinton. During my students' lifetime, and they have not lived for very long, this is the second time that it has happened, George W. Bush, boy George, managing to become president despite Al Gore getting more votes. So democracy, when it comes to the president of the United States, yeah, okay, let's move on. No democracy, apparently, there. So we have the legislative branch. Legislative branch, of course, split it to a bicameral legislature. One is the United States Senate. Well, 40-something million residents of the state of California get two United States senators, a few hundred thousand people, and six times that many cows in North Dakota also get two senators. Between them, North Dakota and South Dakota, with probably about one-thirtieth the population of California, gets twice the members of the United States Senate. As I have pointed out, the United States Senate, currently controlled by Republicans, despite the fact that Democratic senators represent more people and Democratic senators received more votes than Republicans. Okay, so so much for democracy in the United States Senate. The House of Representatives is supposed to be the Democratic part of the United States government. It's referred to as the People's House because the people are supposed to actually put the people into put put their uh, representatives into office. But as has been noted repeatedly, has become a cliche basically. In a democracy, voters choose their leaders. In America, leaders choose their voters. And because once you capture a state legislature, as the Republicans have for a long time, for for many of our states, you get to draw congressional districts and state legislative districts, because it's at that level as well, you get to draw them however the hell you want. And based on the United States Supreme Court decision, I mean pretty much however the hell you want, unless you manage to make the mistake of saying, there, now those black people won't get to vote. But if you come out and you partisanly draw districts to make sure that your opponents can never get elected, to make sure that the House of Representatives, well, at least there's a firewall to prevent you from losing control under anything but the most egregious circumstances, you know, like Donald Trump being president of the United States, then that's apparently perfectly okay. You get to draw your legislative districts. So in effect, you take away the right to vote from 90-something percent of the U.S. population. The United States Supreme Court has ruled that that's perfectly fine. Well, a court in North Carolina showed a little bit more sense, a little bit more decency, and a little bit more respect for this country and for democracy by saying, no, it isn't. And that brings us to the other news in North Carolina, which is not nearly as uplifting. And that is the North Carolina special congressional election to fill a seat that hadn't been filled before because the Republican who barely eked out a victory the last time, it turns out, cheated. That's right. Engaged in voting fraud. Boy, Trump administration is going to be all over him sometime in the next 30 or 40 years. But anyway, because they had to 
vitiate the results of the last election because the Republicans cheated. They had to do another election, and a different Republican candidate came in, and of course, the people of that congressional district voted for the party that cheated the last time. Ah, Americans, we love democracy. We certainly love competition. More on that in a few moments, what would lead to this. So the Republican eked out a victory. Now, I'm not sure to what extent that particular legislative district was the result of gerrymandering, why the fact that it is a dark red district that Republicans would have to try dramatically hard to lose. In fact, they already did, and they still won. I don't know if that's the result of gerrymandering or if that's just the result of the fact that this district represents a lot of not very bright, not very informed people. But it is still representative of the idea that we do not have democracy even at the level of the House of Representatives. Court systems, of course, are not supposed to be about democracy, but of course democracy is supposed to lead, at least in our federal judiciary, to the, to the uh, appointment of judges. And as we've talked about endlessly on this show, Republicans are filling the judiciary, the federal judiciary, with lifetime appointments for their judges. They have a they have control of the United States Supreme Court, despite losing six out of the last seven national elections. So the next time you think of being proud of living in a democracy, I hope you live in Canada or someplace other than the United States that might actually have democracy. Until then, when you hear someone talk about the will of the people, make sure to guard your wallet because there's someone who's got his eye on it. We will never be able to fix this country until we fix this country's democracy. The Electoral College, gerrymandering, and campaign funding, primarily. As bad as democracy is in the United States overall, as much as the average American voter demonstrates that we are not up to living in a democracy. The fact is, our democracy or pseudo-democracy is made that much worse by the fact that those with outsized power in our democracy are those least able to exercise it. All of this, of course, the situation where we, our elected political leaders show absolutely no respect for the basic constitutional principles of this country and our basic concepts of democracy are born of the need to win or born is born of our competitive nature our idea that anything that we can do to win is okay in a couple of my classes the semester has started and right off the bat i'm getting into a discussion of what is required for a free market system and for it to function efficiently and i talk about how one of the basic requirements of a free market system is competition in areas where competition doesn't exist which unfortunately describes much of our economy right now you have market failure but as i'm going over the importance of competition i'm thinking about the idea that competition is basically a predicate for everything in this country everything we talk about our conversations all accept the idea that competition is an unalloyed good but is competition an unalloyed good? Is our whole competitive nature, our culture of win at all costs, really such a good thing? Is it even good in business? What does it lead to? We're told all the time, and there's certainly some truth to this, 
that competition gives us better toys, gives us better cell phones, gives us innovation, new products. Although it seems to me that the one thing that I can be confident gives us all those things is science. And God knows at this point, the governing political party in this country sure as hell doesn't accept science as an unalloyed good. It doesn't even accept it as an alloyed good. It doesn't accept it at all, in fact. I'm not so sure, but I'll, I'll give to you that competition leads people, I guess, to work harder, to design better products, to make a lot of money. So I'm not against competition overall. I'm not even for equal sharing. I repeat, I'm not a communist. But competition also gives us a lot of things that I think we really don't want. And I think it turns us into things that I think we really don't want us to be. For instance, competition gives us bigger and bigger and ever bigger gas-guzzling, environment-destroying, and child-killing SUVs. They keep getting bigger and bigger. Not because people actually need to be driving around in something the size of a football field. I think primarily because they need to be driving around in something that is bigger and more intimidating than what everybody else is driving around in. I have talked about the arms race behind the wheel for a long time. Our competitive nature wants us to drive around in bigger and bigger vehicles that the planet and our children cannot afford. It leads us to build homes, bigger and bigger and bigger. Not because we need them, but because they need to be bigger than those of our neighbors. Because they show people that we have competed successfully, that we are the best. I remember going to visit a friend of mine years and years ago at his mansion, in which he, his wife, and his two young children lived. And I remember him giving me a tour and walking into a room where he said, this is my cigar room. And I just burst out laughing. Cigar room? You're a fucking idiot. I think I actually said you're a fucking idiot. A few years later, he was proud to tell me that he had sold that house and moved into another house, the basement of which could fit his old house for four people. He's not using 90% of that house, except when he gets to say to his neighbors, my house is bigger than yours. My house could kick the shit out of your house in a fight. It leads us to live beyond our means, this idea of competition, of not only keeping up with the Joneses, of course, but of beating the shit out of the Joneses. It leads us to buy vehicles we can't afford and more importantly, it leads us to buy homes we can't afford, which might not only lead to environmental degradation, but as we just lived to, lived through, might lead to the destruction of the U.S. and world economy. It leads us, our competitive nature, to act like assholes. It leads us, by definition, to promote our own selfishness and our own greed. Because after all, that's what competition is about. It's not about concern for others. It's about concern for winning, concern for yourself. And most of us have known, well, we as a society have known for thousands of years that selfishness is not a way to run a society. 
That's why we have rules. That's why we have ethics. That's why we try to inculcate decency into our young ones. An effort that is being undermined by our lifting of competition onto a pedestal. My seven-year-old son, a few months ago, came home from school. He was asked to write a story. And he wrote a story. I don't know where this came from. Where he talked about a business that was making a lot of money that was doing very well. So because it was making so much money, it was, it was able to give its workers a big raise. And as a result, everybody was happy and we all lived happily ever after. I was so proud of my son, despite the fact that I really wanted to say to him, son, you're going to need to sit down and we're going to need to talk about how the world works. Why the fuck would these business executives willingly give that extra money to their workers? They don't, you know. That's not the way it works. Why should they share with workers? It's mine, damn it. I can have more. Because these people need to have bigger homes, bigger yachts, and bigger Ferraris than the people they go to the country club with. This idea of putting competition on a pedestal turns us into a society of cheaters. And yes, our competitive nature Our win-at-all-costs ideals are what makes us such cheaters. And we are spectacular cheaters, both as humans and our businesses. It is acceptable in this country to cheat. It is acceptable for our pro athletes. Listen to my show of a few months ago on, on how cheating, our cheating culture has become acceptable and needs to not be acceptable. For our businesses, cheating is just perfectly normal and perfectly acceptable. It makes us into scumbags, let's face it. The way we drive on the road. I drive in traffic every day and it's an absolute nightmare. It's not just the waste of time. I've decided that the problem is looking at what's going on in the road around me. The people who move into the exit ramp and then cut back in so they could pass five or six cars because after all, it's a competition. Competition that saved you six or seven seconds and turned you into an asshole. And it's turning most of us into assholes because we are such competitive shits. You know, the the recent or not so recent craze, I guess, to give every kid a trophy. Like everybody else in this country, my visceral reaction, and without thinking about it, the, the position I had for years was... This is really stupid. Every kid gets a trophy. This is this is where we are now. We have to support people who lost and say, oh, you won anyway. Well, I thought about this and I'm actually really embarrassed at my initial reaction to this. Why the hell shouldn't every kid get a trophy? What the hell kind of message are we sending to our children? The only reason to play soccer is the hope that you win and then you get a trophy? Winning shouldn't be the ultimate goal. Playing should be the ultimate goal. I am now all in favor of every kid getting a trophy. I'm not sure I'd call it a trophy, a plaque, a pat on the back, a reward. Congratulations for playing. So what? Some other kids are bigger. They've been playing longer. They spend more time at this and they beat you. So what? Who cares? I had kind of a Almost a fight with my wife a month or two ago. We were having a birthday party for my kids. And my wife had devised all these really creative games for kids to play. She was breaking them up into two teams. 
And she said, we're going to buy all these rewards, candy and stuff, for the winning team in all these events to have. And I said, maybe we should do it differently. Why should the winning team get to candy? Why shouldn't everybody get to candy? Why don't we do it? We'll make it com somewhat competitive. The winning team gets to choose what everybody gets to have. We'll have extra candy and snacks or whatever available, and the winning team gets to choose. But everybody gets, my wife was all upset with me. What, what, what is that all about? What, that's not the way you do this. This competition. What I said, and what are you going to say to the team, to all those kids who are at my kid's party celebrating, who lost the first three games and are spending the party watching their friends eat snacks? My wife, to her credit, said, reluctantly, okay, I guess you're right. What is wrong with the idea that you don't have a good time, that it's not worth the effort, that it wasn't fun, that you shouldn't be proud of yourself if you didn't win? Let every damn kid get a trophy who played. You want to give a little bit bigger trophy to the kids who won? Fine. But why is everything about competition? Why isn't the message to young children, have fun playing the game? This leads us to laud all the wrong people. The people who maybe do everything to win. Yes, the U.S. women's soccer team, which gloats with a 12 to nothing lead. Or the soccer stars on the travel teams who managed to beat up my son's teams 13 to nothing and are still celebrating. Whereas, as I reported months ago, the the somewhat older and bigger boy on my younger son's soccer team who was really good and who, after dominating the first half in a game that my team, my son's team led by a lot, basically didn't try very hard in the second half because he really didn't want to rub it in. This is a kid who deserves a trophy. This is a kid who deserves our praise. This is a kid who shows sportsmanship, who shows respect. You know, we just finished the U.S. Open in New York. And for my book, the best moment at the U.S. Open, I don't even remember the match. And I didn't watch a lot of them, and I assumed that there were other moments like this. But I was I watching some match with my wife, and hard-fought point, and one of the guys fell down at the end of the point, and the other guy walked around the net, reached out his hand, and helped him up. Maybe it's trite, but to me, that was the most uplifting moment of the U.S. Open. Sportsmanship. Respect for others. Respect for the game. As I tell my children all the time, respect the game. Respect yourself. Respect your opponent. I don't tell them to win. Maybe the worst of all, this focus on competition, is it leads us into different camps. It turns us into shits to begin with. Greedy little selfish shits. But it also divides us into camps. Different teams. Sports fans that will fight with their friends because one of them chooses to root for one corporation where another one chooses to root for a different corporation. Big freaking deal. And this leads to a culture that allows rich people to continue to conduct their war on poor people and everybody else. It is a culture that allows people with more money than they will ever be able to spend in dozens of lifetimes to destroy the lives of others, take away the health care of already suffering people, take food away from children, take opportunity 
away from children so they could have a little bit more. So they could turn to the people around them and say, my yacht is bigger than yours. More on the war between rich and poor next week, but that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you next week. You've been listening to Forward Nation Radio with David Leventhal. 